From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department Inspector General says the Pentagon's award of the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract to Microsoft was proper. The IG found Defense Department lawyers told witnesses not to answer questions about the contract, though, because of presidential communications privilege. Breaking Defense reports the IG interviewed more than 80 officials, including the officials who ran the procurement. Federal chief information officers have a standard to tag information on web pages about coronavirus. The standard tags are from schema.org. FedScoop reports the White House says the tags should make it easier for the public to find information online. The Air Force is 3D printing face shields and face masks to help with the coronavirus response. Airmen at Travis Air Force Base have moved from creating parts for military aircraft to personal protective equipment. Defense News reports other bases are starting to print gear too. Agencies have transitioned to 100% or close to 100% telework during the pandemic. The government still needs to hire new people and keep things running, even while employees are working from home. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, I teased you before we went on the air. You look the best of all of this. You're eminently, of all the people we've had on, you're eminently qualified to talk about telework. How is this working? What's your sense of how it's working to continue the mission that's ongoing? hiring people, bringing people in, onboarding, and training during a pandemic and a telework environment like this? Well, being sensitive of the environment in the sense that this is not business as usual and it's not regular telework. We are essentially asking federal government employees to lift and move their mission to another location. So this may not be the best pilot to demonstrate productivity and customer service during a pandemic emergency like what we're operating right now. However, it is a great opportunity for us to test out our bandwidth, our innovation, our creativity, especially as it relates to the human capital areas that are essentially highlighted on the GAO high risk list. So as you were saying, Francis, things to recruiting and hiring to onboarding to employee engagement and of course telework can all be tested really well in this environment and there's some room for being able to implement different ways of operating because it's a necessity to do so we're able to then see whether or not there are some successes here working in a different environment or doing things on different systems or in a different process or leveraging a different policy in ways that we wouldn't be able to do if we were all still co-located together in a brick and mortar environment. So you used a phrase there that I think is interesting. You said this is not regular telework. What's the difference between what agencies are doing now and what they would do in a standard telework environment? And how do you apply what you learn from this and, and use it as you kind of referred to as kind of a pilot program yeah. for what happens six months from now or a year from now or whenever it is that we kind of go back to whatever normal looks like. 
Yeah, well, first and foremost, I want to assure you that this is not just applicable to the federal government. This is happening to companies and organizations all over our nation. So if we didn't have well thought out and practiced telework agreements, telework policies, and telework plans that were a component of COOP and emergency operations, then it's likely that we're hitting the ground running. Um, we are starting from the ground up to get employees at every level accustomed to leveraging technology, collaboration tools, figuring out to communicate with one another, and also how to leverage those other kinds of workplace flexibilities that are necessary when we have a whole lot of distractions in the workplace, especially right now. People are asked to co-locate with their spouses or partners or roommates or pets. Children are home. This is not business as usual. So I do caution us all to remind ourselves of that when we are evaluating the productivity and the efficiencies around telework. That said, this is all giving us an opportunity, as you just mentioned, to really leverage this program the way it was intended for continuity of operations, for maximum efficiencies, for service delivery, and to hopefully take care of one another in this environment and keep each other safe. The thing about all of this, Mika, that's been the mo most fascinating to me is the, the, the shift that has been required, I mean, the, the, the lurching. Last time you were on the program was right before all of this started. And we talked about the fact that the Social Security Administration was cutting back dramatically on telework. And now SSA is one of those agencies that's gone almost 100% to telework. They've closed locations because it's not safe for uh, Social Security recipients to be coming to do in-person meetings. Is it possible that what looks what telework looks like after this is over doesn't look like what we just talked about a moment ago doesn't look like what it looked like before because of those kinds of shifts because of people understanding that we were forced to do things that we didn't want to do before and now we have data to give us information about how it really works yeah, absolutely. And it's going to teach us how to communicate and interface with customers in a whole different way and in a different environment than in person only. So commuting, communicating expectations around availability, accessibility, what our backup plans are for contacts and helping and, and making sure that we're available and that services are continuing for the American public, but also that we're available for each other. I believe this might even shift and it's necessary to do so. The way we consider work, um, I understand wholeheartedly the importance of being judicious with official government time and making sure that people are accountable for delivering the services that we pay them to do every day. However, um, they have lives too. And so leveraging a performance-based, um, more modern approach to our workplaces is long overdue. So again, back to even leveraging things like flexible work schedules, leave policies, um, structuring how you're managing performance and how you're managing your teams are all gonna be practiced right now in this very moment. And what we're learning together now will be able to be brought back to the workplace. So I often ask people to consider what do they want to be telling themselves about how federal agencies were resilient, how we overcame some of these challenges together, and how we're gonna make our service delivery, our mission effectiveness, and how we care for one another and support each other in the workplace stronger and better when we reintegrate back to a new way 
of the world working because it will, I don't believe it will be business as usual or going back to normal. This is normal now. Mika Cross, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to see you, my friend. Great to see you too, Francis. Thank you. Stay well. Up next, contract awards down in Q2. Straight ahead on Government Matters, is it coronavirus? Is it something else or is it everything? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Contract awards for the second quarter are down from the same period last year. It is too early to tell, though, if it's because of coronavirus or not. Dave Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, former assistant secretary of defense for logistics and materiel readiness. Dave, thanks very much for coming on. You sent me some wonderful notes about things that you're tracking. And toward the very end, that note about Q2 contract receipts. What's your take on what's happening there? Is it specifically because of coronavirus, do you think, or are there other circumstances that are driving that? I think there's a huge coronavirus impact from this already, Francis. And it's useful to remember that when we're comparing the second quarter of FY20 with the second quarter of FY19, remember what that second quarter of FY19 included. It included the vast majority of the 35-day government partial shutdown. Uh, back last year. And so that was already a depressed baseline to begin comparing to. I think when we see the second quarter data, particularly from civilian agencies being down this year, after having already been down last year over the previous year, then there's great cause for concern. One of the priorities PSC has had from the beginning of this coronavirus crisis is keep the whole government operating, not just the parts that are dealing with the crisis. And the numbers that you see in contract obligations, while it's not everything the government does, we think it's reflective of a dampening effect elsewhere. And we really need to counter that. The priority is on keeping people working. The priority is on keeping the government operating. And in order to do that, you have to obligate the available appropriations at the normal pace. You wrote in the notes that you sent me, David, about the, the whole of government approach. Use that phrase a couple of times. Is that your concern? Is that some uh, agencies, some organizations within agencies are so focused on coronavirus response that they're either slowing or stopping other kinds of work? Well, it's a grave concern, and it's not only a concern for ongoing work, it's a concern for future work. You know, we're watching very closely the pace of solicitations and evaluations and awards for future work. And, and while we don't have a central database to do this, uh, reports from our companies tell us that uh, awards are coming, but not necessarily at the pace they should be. New solicitations are coming. In some cases, interestingly, uh, Francis, we actually think that uh, evaluations are going faster because the evaluators are working for home and they're having fewer distractions. So there are signs of hope here, but it takes central focus from across the board at every agency and from the White House on down. So faster evaluations is something that everybody seems to like. The vendors like it, the department likes it, and everyone else seems to like it. The places where that's happening, is it really just as simple as people are working from home so they can focus more? Or do you think there might be more to it than that, Dave? Well, we, are, we have a number of agencies that have regular calls with trade associations. PSC participates in these. Some agencies are three times a week, others are once a week. And the vast majority of these calls are focusing on coronavirus-related solicitations. And so I think we need to make sure that we rise above that across the board 
everything from the agriculture department to treasury and transportation still needs to be doing their day jobs. The American economy depends on it. The American people depend on it. I, I don't want you to, to ask you to speak out of school, but what's the tenor or the tone or common threads in those calls that are useful to the companies that you deal with every day, David? I think the problem, Francis, is there really is no common thread. Mm. And one of the challenges that we've seen, you know, in everything from teleworking to how do you deal with contractors whose work cannot be done remotely, who have to actually be on site, either because of the network or the classified information they need to access, or it's a touch labor job that you can't do uh, over a telephone or a video. And, and I think that the lack of consistency across the board, you know, Congress attempted to do some of this in the CARES Act with a number of provisions there, but the implementation of those has not been even, has not been consistent, and in fact, in some cases is adding tremendous additional bureaucratic burdens in terms of process and reporting. It's important, I think, that we have full implementation, that we have fair implementation, but also that we have facile implementation so that, in fact, people can focus on getting the work done rather than all of the bureaucratic, increased bureaucratic documentation that has to be flowed from that. What are you hearing on those calls or any place else as you're talking to people across government, David, that will work in a post-COVID world? What are we taking away from what we're doing now that might apply to improve the acquisition process or the industry government collaboration process or something like that at some point in the future after COVID's not as big a priority anymore? That's a great question, Francis. And I think there's a couple of things, and we are seeing a, a great focus from, from many agencies on getting things done today, right? But I think that the question of, do we go back to what we were doing before? We've learned a huge lesson, I believe, that not everybody has to be next to one another in order to get the work done. And, and I think the future of work not only is important in terms of how we do the work, I think it's important in terms of how we recruit and retain the workforce that we need. You know, probably a lot of folks who thought they were close to retirement may be delaying their retirement now, but it doesn't mean that we don't still have that huge bulge of the workforce, both on the federal civilian side and to a lesser degree on the contractor side, that we're going to have to replace with future generations. And I think there's some huge lessons about how we can recruit and retain a workforce that is more agile, more remote, doesn't even necessarily need to live in the metropolitan Washington area. You know, maybe our traffic will go down. At what point is it fair to look back on this process, what we're working in today, and evaluate the outcomes that we got from contracting as a result and say this worked or it didn't work as well as it could have and we should do it differently this way moving forward or that way moving forward? It's not too soon to start right now on that, Francis. And I think you touched on something, which is results. One of the big problems in the services uh, business for government contractors is the government still buys input, not results and outcomes. I think one of the great lessons of this is we can focus a lot more on the results and the outcomes and let's build procurements and let's manage the contractors in such a way that we focus on results. That has to be done at the solicitation end, at the evaluation end, at the award end, and at the performance end. It's not too soon to start on that. We should start today working on that. David Berteau, thanks as always, my friends. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you, and we'll do it again. Up next, the Defense Department's trailing on some of its cybersecurity work straight ahead on Government Matters, getting cyber right in the pandemic era and beyond. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The Defense Department has some catching up to do on cybersecurity initiatives. The Government Accountability Office says DOD hasn't finished a lot of the work that was supposed to be finished at the end of fiscal year 2016. Bob Bigman is founder of 2B Secure, former Chief Information Security Officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bob, it's good to see you. What's happening here in some cases with Government Accountability Office work? They take a lot of criticism for being snapshots in time that are not necessarily reflective of what's happening at the moment in a particular organization. Is it possible that that's kind of the case here with this work on the Defense Department? Uh, I mean, it, yeah, it's just, by the way, good morning. <laughs> it's always true that, uh, you know, the GAO's uh, studies and assessments are, are a point in time. That's that's how they do, they do their work. Um, and, and indeed, there are some revelations in the report about uh, the fact that DOD has actually taken action on a number of the more important uh, areas uh, of, of all three studies that they looked at. Uh, they looked at just from a general GAO's that says, well, here's the number, here's the total number of things we found. And they only did certain ones of them. But when you d dig into the report, and you know, being at home, I had had time to dig into this report. When you dig into the report, you find that uh, really the, the really critical ones, like setting up DMZs between their uh, internet connections and their internal networks, have been accomplished. So yeah, I, I think you're right. But uh, there, there are some good uh, GAO revelations in the report as well. What are some of the things that jumped out at you as particular areas of either great success? or shortcomings that really need plugged quick? Well, shortcomings first. Um, the, the big surprise to me was the revelation that uh, there's no one in DOD who singularly has this responsibility for cybersecurity. That's, I mean, how long have we been making that point? Uh, here we are in 2020, and there still is no single belly button to push on cybersecurity. In fact, um, on page 24, uh, so yes, yes, I did read it. <laughs> on page 24, the uh, DESA representatives say, "Well, you know, we don't really know, you know, who who to go to, or or basically who's singularly responsible for all these uh, assessment reports." Well, that's that's pretty damning. Um, the second one, related to the first, is where's the CISO? Um, I mean, I'll tell you where he's at. He's he's reporting to the CIO. And again, um, in the report they mention, and they give you a long list of all the people in DOD they talked to and who are involved in cybersecurity. And guess who they didn't mention? Uh, the CISO. That, that's a bit alarming as well. Uh, you know, we've known for some time that it's best practices to have the CISO report as, as a peer to the CIO, but not to report you know, to the CIO. And I, I think that's, a, that's an important revelation as well. What has to happen in order for these things to get fixed. Now, normally in a GAO report, the uh, organization, the agency concurs with the recommendations or demonstrates how it's starting to meet the recommendations or sometimes says, we don't agree with those recommendations, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. The point is not to, to comply with recommendations, the point is to fix cybersecurity vulnerabilities and potential vulnerabilities in an organization. What has to happen to make some of the things work better than they're working today. Yeah, I, I think um, this, this the one report they refer to is the one that deals with culture, right? And I think that's the one that has to make the big change. You know, they have to, you know, DOD has come a long way and has actually implemented a lot of, uh, you know, important security measures. But from my perspective, the one they haven't done is, is change the culture at DOD to truly make cybersecurity mission critical. 
Yes, I know they talk they talk about it and they, they tell you that it is. But then when you look at a report like this and you find that, uh, well, we, we don't really know who exactly is singularly responsible, that tells you that they really haven't changed uh, the culture. So the first thing is, you know, you gotta make some changes at the SecDef level. You gotta elevate the role of the CISO. You have to make the combatant commanders and the DOD organizations individually by name accountable for cybersecurity. That's how things get accomplished um, in that organization. What does the CISO structure look like throughout the military in a successful transformation like you're talking about? A CISO that's a peer of Dana Deasy as the CIO, I understand that. Does that same thing need to happen at the branch level, at the combatant command level? Every place else that you have a CIO, do you need a peer CISO also? Which, what, uh, I think you do. And what I would suggest is you have the CISOs as a different career service from the CIO and the IT organizations, and you have them all report to a C, instead of reporting individually to their commands, their combatant commands or their individual organization, they should duly report there as well as to the senior CISO of the department. And they should have the authority uh, to, to affect change both not just by a policy perspective, DOD has lots of cyber policy, but effect change in how they basically orchestrate IT and how they actually implement um, operations at, at DOD. Uh, they really need to just elevate, you know, the voice and interest of the, uh, of the cyber organization. Bob, thanks very much for coming on. Stay safe during all of this. Thank you very much. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.